Eternal Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks that you have protected your church down through the centuries. Not only have you protected us from external threats, from heresies that have come against the church from the outside, but you have also protected us from erroneous teachings that have arisen from within the church. And you have always faithfully maintained a faithful remnant. We thank you that you have made us part of this faithful remnant. And we ask that you would use our use this uh, time that we have together this evening to help us to sharpen our discernment and to strengthen us and to recognize the many threats that constantly come against your church from both outside and inside. Yeah, we thank you for this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, we're going to resume looking at some church fathers. Specifically, we're going to look at Cyprian and Ambrose. And we're going to consider the Lord's Supper. and the changes, significant changes that took place in the third and fourth centuries. In what is the earliest pagan Roman description of Christianity, the imperial governor Pliny the Younger mentions in a letter to the Emperor Trajan that Christians in Bithynia and Pontus, whom he had placed on trial for their beliefs, were in the habit of meeting on a weekly basis to partake of food, but common and harmless food. And you might say, well, duh, well what, of course we partake of common and harmless food. Well, why would you think any different? Well, I'll explain. Pliny, Pliny's evident surprise that the food consumed by these Christians was both ordinary and harmless seems to reveal that he expected to find something quite different, something deviant and sinister. Such meals as were supposedly consumed by Christians were luridly described in a mid-2nd century speech that some scholars attribute to the Roman grammarian and rhetorician Marcus Cornelius Fronto. And this was also quote cited by the Christian apologist Manusius Felix in his rebuttal of attacks on the Christian faith. Because there were lies that were spread about Christians in the meal that they partook of. This is incredible. It might seem incredible to you. The story of there, in other words, the Christian initiation of novices, is as horrible as is well is as well known. This is what they thought was taking place in Christian communion. A baby covered with pastry, so as to deceive the unwary, is set before the initiate in their rites. The novice is encouraged by the pastry crust to give it seemingly harmless jabs, and the baby is killed by the unseen and hidden wounds. Thirstily, oh, for shame, they lick up his blood, compete in sharing out his limbs, league themselves together by this victim, pledge themselves to mutual silence by this complicity in crime. These rites are fouler than any sacrilege. This was the pagan lie that was circulating about what Christians did in their communion service. Given the number of Christian apologists in the second century, responded to this charge of cannibalism, there seems little doubt that this accusation about Christians was widespread. It is, of course, a garbled misunderstanding of the dominical command to eat his body and drink his blood. 
as well as mere slander. But if the early Christians were not engaged in such reprehensible deeds, what was actually happening in their assemblies when they took the Lord's Supper? What did they experience as they participated in the Lord's Supper? These are vital questions. For during the course of the Protestant era, there is little doubt that the celebration of the Lord's Supper, or as it is more commonly called in this era, the Eucharist, became a central aspect of the worship of the church. In this lesson, we look at the Eucharistic thought of two figures in the Latin patristic tradition, Cyprian of Carthage and Ambrose of Milan, both of whom played key roles in the development of the theology of the Eucharist, are both good and bad, as we shall see. Very little of Cyprian's life prior to his conversion is known. His earliest biographer, Pontius, began his bi biography at the conversion of Cyprian, where he reckoned that the deeds and character of a man of God ought not to be discussed from any point other than when he was converted. What is known is that Cyprian came from the circles of higher society in Roman North Africa, was accustomed to living in easy circumstances, and was a man of wealth with a considerable personal fortune. He relinquished much of his wealth at the time of his conversion. Cyprian had won renown and reputation as a rhetor, that is one who trained aspiring orators and taught the art and science of public discourse. There is no indication that he was ever married. By the early 240s, Cyprian had become increasingly disillusioned with his world and the luxuries and privileges he possessed came to hold little appeal for him. He was, he was drawn to the Christian faith through his friendship with a certain Sicilianus, an aged elder in the Christian community in Carthage. What made him decide to become a Christian? One author has suggested that he was disgusted at the world in which he lived. There is certainly evidence of that in the letter he wrote shortly after his conversion. But this same letter clearly indicates that there was a key personal element that led Cyprian to become a Christian. As he heard the gospel, he became convicted of his sins, among which he noted pride, anger, covetousness, and lust. He sought to reform his life, but to no avail. Thinking that he would never be able to divest himself of these sins, he despaired of ever living a life of virtue and plunged back into his old ways. But then, and he does not tell us the details, he was suddenly converted and in his words immediately in a marvelous manner, doubtful matters clarified themselves. The closed open, the shadowy shone with delight, with light. What seemed impossible was able to be accomplished. Looking back on this time of transformation, Cyprian was later, was later aware that it was the Holy Spirit who had brought him to faith in the new birth. Our power is of God, I said. All of it is of God. From him we have life. And we can certainly all agree with that. And so Cyprian became a catechumen, a learner in the Christian faith. Most catechumens in the church at Carthage would have been drawn from the poorer classes. As a member of the upper class, Cyprian undoubtedly would have stood out. And of all the various groups and subcultures within the empire, the church was virtually the only one 
that drew its membership from across the social and economic spectrum and managed to weld them into a genuine community. And that re remains true today, doesn't it? Um, those of us who are in the church uh, would not have come together under any other circumstances, but the, the church has brought us back, brought us together from all walks of life. That was true anciently and it's true today. Within a couple of years of his conversion and baptism in 245 or 246, Cyprian was appointed Bishop of Carthage, which made him the leading bishop in Latin-speaking Africa and an influential voice in the development of North African Christianity. Although initially opposed by more senior elders in Carthage, because of his too rapid advance to the Episcopate and the fact that he seemed to be still too much the secular Roman patron dispensing favors to his clients, Simeon proved to be, in the empire-wide persecutions in the late 240s and 250s, a wise and balanced Christian leader. He was martyred during the reign of the Emperor Valerian for refusing to perform ritual sacrifices to the Roman gods. But I mentioned how Cyprian was appointed bishop very early in his career, you might say, as a Christian. In 1 Timothy, Paul gave these instructions. Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. Both Cyprian and the man that I will discuss next, Ambrose, were ordained as bishops shortly after conversion. The experience of church history shows the wisdom of Paul's instruction. The advancement of a man who is not firmly grounded in scripture can have dire consequences, as it did with Cyprian and Ambrose. The first authentic Eucharistic treatise in the pre-Constantinian era, and next month I'll get into this whole era of Constantine and the Council of Nicaea and the Trinity. Those are important developments in church history. I'll get, be getting into that shortly. But the first authentic Eucharistic treatise in the pre-Constantinian era is, is the way Cyprian's letter, 63, has been described. It was written to Cecilius, Bishop of Ulta, probably in the autumn of 253, to address the error of an Aquarian Eucharist. That is the use of water alone instead of a mixture of wine and water in the Lord's Supper. Uh, maybe you didn't know that there was such a thing, but there was and, and still is for that fact, for that matter. Um, the, Ro the Mormons, for example, use only water, not, not wine, not grape juice in their, in their communion service. Um, I'm not certain of this, but I, this may perhaps be because Mormons don't use alcohol. And so they don't even want to take the chance that, that the grape juice might become fermented. So they just stick with water. But anyway, this was a big deal in, in Cyprian's time. This debate about whether to use only water or to have wine in the, in the Eucharist. Cyprian begins with the basic principle that Christians are not at liberty to change what the Lord Jesus Christ did and taught unless they want to offend their master. And as we'll see later, um, I wish that Cyprian would have realized that not only is, can't you change what the Lord did, but you shouldn't change what the New Testament te teaches about the Lord's Supper. When it comes to the Eucharistic cup, 
this specifically means that the chalice that is offered in memory of him should be offered mixed with wine. For since Christ pronounces, I am the true vine, the blood of Christ without qualification is not water. Christ's own use of wine at the Last Supper as an illustration of his blood instructs the church that the chalice should be mixed by commingling water and wine. And this is what was handed down by the apostles. To use water alone is thus to go against dominical, evangelical, and apostolic practice. The Carthaginian bishop finds support for his argument from various Old Testament examples that he regards as types of the passion of the Christ and his representation in the bread and wine. The inebriation of Noah, the offering of bread and wine by Melchizedek, Lady Wisdom in Proverbs 9, the blessing of Judah, and an Isaiahic prediction of the Messiah in Isaiah 63. Cyprian then notes that it is the initiatory rite of baptism that is in water alone. So that's water alone in baptism, but not in the Lord's Supper. The Eucharist, though, must employ both water and wine, for its, its purpose is to recall the shedding of Christ's blood. Cyprian also buttresses his argument with a phrase from Psalm 23.5, as it appeared in the old Latin translation of the Psalms. In the version of this Psalm known to Cyprian, there was a statement, your cup, though, it's, though the finest, is intoxicating, which the bishop interprets as a reference to the Lord's Supper. As Cyprian notes, water alone never causes inebriation. For drunkenness to occur, there must be wine. Of course, we're taking of the cup in the Eucharist, for this is in, in sobriety entirely different from that of this world's wine. Eucharistic in sobriety makes men and women sober in the sense that it restores hearts back to a, a spiritual wisdom, in the sense that each person returns to its senses about his understanding of God from tasting the experience of this age. What is fascinating about this interpretation is that it provides us with a vantage point to reflect upon the richness of, Syrians, of Cyprian's experience of the Lord's table. This likening of and yet contrast with drunkenness and the joy of the spirit is something that the New Testament presents to us. We read in Acts 2.15, in Peter's, Peter's famous sermon. For those for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, about 9 a.m. So the effects of the spirit are something that unbelievers might mistake for inebriation, yet it is distinctly different. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. For the North African theologian, the Lord's Supper is a place of spiritual wisdom, for it helps to recall men and women from their temptation of being infatuated with the world. As Cyprian goes on to note, drinking of the Lord's cup is a means of forgetting this world's pattern of living. And just as ordinary wine initially has a relaxing effect and, and a way of dispelling sadness, so it is that the Lord's Supper, conducted as the Lord directed, which in this context means wine mixed with water, relieves the believer of those choking sins that had overwhelmed him or her. The Eucharist is thus a place where the believer knows afresh the forgiveness of the Lord, 
and as a result is amused with joy. In relation to this, elsewhere, Severian had encouraged Christians as soldiers of Christ to drink the cup of the blood of Christ so that they might be enabled to renounce the world even to the point of shedding their blood for Christ. The Eucharist also speaks of the union of the people with their Lord. Severian suggests that the water in the cup represents the people of God, while wine, of course, is indicative of the shed blood of the Savior. When the water is mixed with wine in the cup, then it depicts the unbreakable union of love that Christians have with one another and with their Lord. Given what the cup therefore represents, it is improper to use either water alone or wine by itself. Similarly, the bread that is broken consists of wheat gathered in ground and kneaded together with water to form one loaf. For Cyprian, the Eucharist is a powerful experiential witness to the sworn bond that binds together the believers as that one body in Christ. This was especially important for Cyprian as he sought to deal with schismatics in the North African churches who refused to offer full restoration to those who had apostatized in the DCN persecution and who afterward were sincerely repentant. So the church in the third century had to deal with, with this situation where believers had left the church in a time of intense persecution and then after the persecution was over they wanted to come back. They, wanted, they were repentant, they wanted to come back. And some people in the church who had gone through the persecution did not want to accept them. As J. Padalt Burns notes for Cyprian, the uniting of the community in Christ became the major function of the Eucharist. And we can see this too in, in 1 Corinthians 11, where, where Paul urges the, the believers to wait for one another. He, he talks about how the Lord's Supper should be a time uniting Christians, not a time of division. This letter is also noteworthy. And now we get to the bad side of Cyprian's views about the Lord's Supper. This letter is also noteworthy for it contains, in the estimation of the incisive theologian P.T. Forsyth, an absolutely unscriptural change. After linking the biblical affirmation about the offering of Christ, the high priest of God, as a sacrifice to the Father, with his command to his disciples to celebrate the Lord's Supper in his remembrance, Cyprian concludes that Jesus is asking his disciples to do exactly as he did. This means that the one presiding at the Eucharist imitates that which Christ did when he offers a true and full sacrifice in the church of God and the church in the church to God the Father. In making this exegetical move, Cyprian becomes, according to Forsyth, and I, I agree with him, the chief culprit in affecting the change from a sacrificium laudis, a sacrifice of praise by the church, to a sacrificium propitiatorium a propitiatory sacrifice by the priest. As I've gone through church history and studied the details, um, it's been very helpful to me. It's been very eye-opening for me that many times 
as we look at church history and we think, as we look at the churches today and we see, well, how did this error come in? How did this get started? Why did they think this? As we look at the details of church history, many times we can see exactly when it came in, how it came in. In many cases, we can see exactly through whom it came in. And that is certainly the case of this idea that the this idea of transubstantiation, that the, that the bread and wine become the body and blood of Jesus, our Lord. Through him, then, let us continue to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. So this, this expression, uh, sacrifice of praise, it is not unscriptural. Let's see. Yeah, sacrifice a sacrifice of praise. That's not unscriptural. But it is unscriptural and scriptural to change from a sacrifice of praise to a propitiatory sacrifice. In Hebrew, we find this expression sacrifice of praise in Hebrews. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. And this expression, sacrifice of praise, comes to us from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah 17, 26, bringing sacrifices of praise unto the house of the Lord. Earlier authors, such as Justin Martyr and Irenaeus of Lyon, had used the term sacrifice when regard, with regard to the Eucharist, based on their exegesis of Malachi 1.11. However, whereas they saw the people of God corporately offering up the sacrifice of the Eucharist in purity of heart, Cyprian identifies the bishop or minister as the one who is uniquely called to do this and who in this aspect of his ministry imitates the high priestly sacrifice of Christ himself. Fundamental to this shift in focus is Cyprian's use of the term priest, sacerdos, as a description of the one presiding at the Eucharist. Martin Luther asserted that, and the New Testament teaches, the priesthood of all believers. And the book of Revelation describes our role in the, in the millennial kingdom. It hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. But Cyprian was proposing something entirely different. He maintained that there was a special elite class of clergy that were invested with the power and authority to essentially duplicate what Christ had done. Prior to Cyprian, this term was never used, this term priest, sacerdos, was never used to designate Christian ministry. But Cyprian, as in the letter under consideration, continually calls the one presiding at the Eucharist, whether bishop or elder, a sacerdos, a priest. And just as there are types of Christ's possession, passion in the history of God's people preceding the incarnation, Cyprian claims in his letter that in the history of the church, since the death and resurrection of Christ, there are priests who imitate Christ's priesthood 
and who are vehicles for his presence in the church's worship. This was something that had not done, been done before. Cyprian presents certain shifts in Eucharistic thought and practice that are taking place during the third century. For him, the Eucharist is a pledge of the unity of the body of Christ as it battles schism in the midst of empire-wide persecution. He also reaffirms the centrality of the table for Christian experiential piety by using the image of sober intoxication as a summary of the way of describing the experience of eating the bread and drinking the wine. In a distinct break from earlier perspectives, though, Cyprian employs the term priest to describe the one presiding at the table, which would provide a ground for later strongly sacerdotal interpretations of the Lord's Supper. And then in, in the fourth century, Ambrose continues this trend. The public embrace of Christianity by a Roman emperor, namely Flavius Valerius Constantinus, otherwise known as Constantine the first, which I'll talk about next month. In the second de decade of the fourth century AD, had such far-reaching effects that by the time he died, there was scarcely any facet of the public life of the empire or that of the church that was not impacted by his policy of official Christianization. Constantine genuinely perceived himself to be a friend and ally of the church, who was used by God to bring an end to the imperial persecution of God's people. Yet the long-term impact of his reign on Christianity was not always for the best. For instance, not long after Constantine's death, his son, the Arian Emperor, Constantius II, was persecuting supporters of the Nicene Creed, such as Athanasius, and thus setting a precedent for the later extensive involvement of the state in the life of the church. And that, that is something that we often find when, when the, the state, the government, gets involved in our lives. Because sometimes the government will be headed by a man that we like, who does things that we like. But later on, when the tables are turned, his opponents come to power and they use these same mechanisms, these same legal mechanisms to do things that we don't like. So the state can sometimes do good things, but often it does bad things using the same mechanisms. Among the key defenders of Nicene Orthodoxy in the West against Arian instigated persecution was Ambrose, an aristocrat like Cyprian and a provincial governor before being appointed Bishop of Milan in 374. With little theological education, and not even baptized, Ambrose was called by the congregation in Milan to be their bishop following the death of his Arian predecessor, Sentius. Used to the exercise of power, Ambrose did not find it easy to adjust to his new role. As I mentioned earlier, once again, we find a man who becomes a Christian and then very quickly is moved up the ladder and he's appointed as bishop of Milan. And so under the circumstances, you can see how this happened because there was this 
feud going on between the, uh, the followers of Athanasius who believed in the Trinity and the followers, followers of Arius who did not believe in the Trinity. And so those who believed in the Trinity were very eager to get a man like Ambrose into office who also believed in the Trinity. But once again, we will see that uh, <clears throat> he had a negative impact on the church in some other areas. And his, it was difficult for Ambrose because he was used to exercising power. And so this had uh, the fact that he couldn't do exactly what he wanted to, affected his relationship with those like the Arian Empress Justina or the decidedly orthodox Theodosius I, who made Nicene Trinitarianism the official religion of the Roman Empire. So it was difficult for him to deal with people on both ends of the spectrum. But this illustrates the dangers faced by influential church leaders in a society now committed to the Christian faith. So the Roman Empire had adopted Christianity First, it had made it legal under Constantine, then it adopted Christianity under Theodosius. But that presented problems for the church because the government went back and forth about between the followers of, of Athanasius and the followers of Arius. Ambrose strongly encouraged young Christians to embrace a life of virginity and wrote his first theological treatise on this subject. His preaching was deeply influenced by the allegorical exegesis of origin, which we looked at previously. So two things to note here. As we move into the, the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, we find that first this idea that the clergy are to remain celibate, the priests and the nuns are to remain celibate, but also there, this idea creeps in that, um, that uh, sex is bad and that the best choice is to be, remain a virgin, to remain celibate. And that sex is uh, wrong even within marriage. So we see this idea coming in. And we also see that his, how his preaching was influenced by the allegorical exegesis of Origen. Origen's use of, of the allegorical method of exegesis affected the church for centuries to come. It was in fact Ambrose's use of allegorization that encouraged Augustine to pay attention to his exposition of Christianity. And this contributed to Augustine's conversion. Augustine also makes mention of Ambrose's introduction of congregational hymn singing to the church at Milan. So this was a good thing that, that Ambrose did was introducing and encouraging uh, congregational singing. Ambrose himself wrote a number of hymns that helped lay the foundation for Latin hymnody. Although Ambrose was not a brilliant theologian, his deep knowledge of Greek gave him access to the riches of the Greek patristic tradition, which he passed on to the West through his various works. If only he would have paid more attention to what the early Greek-speaking fathers of the church had said about the Lord's Supper. 
Ivor Davidson rightly notes that Ambrose's role in the formation of Latin Christianity was both remarkable and complex. This is clearly the case with Eucharistic thought. For Ambrose was a pioneer of new ways of thinking about the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> How many of you know that uh, being an innovator and a pioneer when it comes to theology is not a good thing? <clears throat> the heart of Ambrose's Eucharistic thought and reflection is to be found in his On the Sacraments and On the Mysteries. Like Cyprian, Ambrose sees prefigurations of the Eucharist and such Old Testament texts as the Genesis account of Melchizedek's offering of the bread and wine to Abraham. And that's not a bad thing. But again, like Cyprian, <coughs> Ambrose uses transformative language about the bread and the wine. When consumed in the Lord's Supper, they are the body and blood of Christ. He goes beyond earlier authors, however, by identifying Christ's words of institution as the means by which a change is effected in the elements of bread and wine. Before the bread is consecrated, he said, it is bread. But when Christ's words have been added, it is the body of Christ. Finally, hear him as he says, take and eat of this, all of you, for this is my body. <coughs> and before the words of Christ, the chalice is full of wine and water. When the words of Christ have been added, then blood is affected, which redeemed the people. So behold, in what great respects the expression of Christ is able to change all things. I'll talk more about this later, about this idea of uh, this is my body. Is that really saying what Cyprian and Ambrose claimed it was saying? Fourth, fourth century theologians were more explicit than previous authors in spelling out details of the changes that happened to the bread and the wine at the celebration of the Lord's Supper. For a Greek-speaking author like Cyril of Jerusalem, it is the prayer for the descent of the Spirit upon the elements that brings about a change in them. The West, on the other hand, would follow Ambrose in locating the power to affect change in the elements of the words of Christ. Change in the elements in the words of Christ. To those who found the idea of such change hard to believe, Ambrose brought forward a whole array of biblical examples. So I just want to note that the East and the West differed as to how this change took place. But unfortunately, they had both bought into the idea that the change did take place. The East thought it took place when the spirit descended upon the elements. And the West under Cyril and Ambrose, uh, they thought the change took place when the words of Christ were spoken. But to those who found the idea of such a change hard to believe, and of course we would certainly be among those who find it hard to believe, Ambrose brought forward a whole array of biblical examples. From Moses' rod, which is changed into a servant, and back again to Elijah's iron axe head being made able to float, Ambrose is able to assure his followers of the changes that take place in the elements. By emphasizing that Christ is in that sacrament because it is the body of Christ, 
Therefore, it is not bodily food, but spiritual. Once the apostle also says of the type of it that our fathers ate spiritual meat and drank spiritual drink. For the body of God is a spiritual body. The body of Christ is, a is the body of a divine spirit, because Christ is spirit. So Ambrose is taking many scripture passages out of context and applying them to the Lord's Supper, to the Eucharist, in a way that was never intended. And he does this even to the point of downplaying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in answer to Cyprian and Ambrose and, and to others down to this day who claim that the bread and wine are transformed into the body of Christ, body and blood of Christ, I would respond in this way. You see, G Jesus said, as is recorded in, in John 15, 1 and 5, I am the true vine. I am the vine. You are the branches. Everybody who reads this understands that this is a metaphor. It's not, it doesn't mean that Jesus has leaves and bunches of grapes growing on him. When Jesus says, I am the vine, he's using a metaphor. Likewise, when Jesus says, I am the door, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. So when Jesus says, I am the door, does that mean that he has a knob and hinges on him? No, of course not. He is using a metaphor. But those who want to say that the bread and the wine are transformed into the body and blood of Christ insist that we must take the statements about this is my body literally, that that is not a metaphor. Let's examine that more closely. Now, this st the statement of Jesus that this is my body that's recorded in all of all three of the synoptic gospels in Matthew 26, 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Mark 14, 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Luke 22, 19, and he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul talks about the Lord's Supper. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus uttered these words to his disciples, his actual body was standing right before them. And I think this is a very important point, an extremely important point. And he had not yet been crucified. So, if Jesus transformed the bread into his broken body, and the blood and the wine into his shed blood, then why did he even need to go through with the crucifixion? 
we already had that which pays for our sins. We already had that which reconciles us to God. So why was the crucifixion even necessary? He intended these words to be understood metaphorically. The bread and wine would be symbols for centuries to come. Representations of his broken body and shed blood between the time of his crucifixion and his return for his church. Ambrose is also noted in one other important area relating to the Eucharist, namely the use of the Song of Songs to express the believer's experience at the table. And this is not a bad thing. So as Paul Harvey used to say, wash your ears out with this. So Ambrose uh, used the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon to express the believer's experience at the table. It is Christ, Ambrose remarks, who calls the believer cleansed of sin to come to his table with the words, let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth, which Ambrose interprets to mean, let Christ impress a kiss upon me. The reception of the Lord's Supper is here likened to the joyous experience of being kissed by one's beloved. And it's not wrong, it's not unscriptural to use this imagery to depict the relationship between God and his people or between Christ and believers. This loving communion that Christ has with his people through the Eucharist, Ambrose further likens to the beloved coming into his garden and drinking his wine with milk. This is nothing less, Ambrose maintains, than Christ giving his people forgiveness of sins and their subsequent rejoicing and inebriation in the spirit. To be so inebriated with the spirit, Ambrose continues, is to be deeply rooted in Christ, as such is a state that Ambrose can only describe and as such is a state that Ambrose can only describe as a glorious inebriation. So we find this imagery throughout scripture, uh, this marriage, this is from a passage in Ephesians, we're talking about marriage between a husband and wife. This marriage is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And we also find this imagery used in the book of Revelation. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife, meaning the church, has made herself ready. Then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And this verse from, from the Old Testament. Kiss the Son, blessed are all they that put their trust in him. I think this verse is, uh, is uh, especially significant because it talks about the Son in the Old Testament. Significant changes came into the life of the church and its worship in the fourth century. Along with the toleration of Christianity, there came an understanding of bread and wine actually becoming the body and blood of Christ. In the East, Cyril of Jerusalem seems to have been the first to specify the details of this conversion, though the greatest influence in this regard came from Gregory of Nyssa. In the West, Ambrose is the main conduit of this line of thinking. Ambrose's emphasis on the transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ 
would increasingly make the Lord's Supper not so much a community celebration as it was for earlier Christians, but a place of reverent awe and fear lest something be done wrong. Ambrose's thought, but also an exact in exact <laughs> inexorably lead to confusion of symbol and meaning. If only he could have limited his understanding of the Eucharist to his use of the Song of Songs. For by it, Christians are reminded that the table was ultimately meant to be a place of exuberant spiritual joy over sins forgiven and union with Christ. Father, we give you great thanks once again for the way in which you have providentially protected your church from external heresy and from internal error. And we ask that you will be with us and you will strengthen us and give us great greater discernment as we confront the heresies and the false teachings and the errors that are constantly launched against your church. We thank you that you have been with us, that you have guided Christians down to the ages, and we pray that you will continue to do so in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.